Thanks, Seth. Um, so turn to 2 Samuel 15. I'm going to read it to us, um, and then we'll spend some time uh, looking at it together. It's on page 266, um, if you're using one of the Bibles in the seats. Um, I realized this morning that my ESV, although it has exactly the same page numbers and everything, is anglicized, so we don't have uh, gotten and things like that. In, uh, so it might, a few words might be different, but I hopefully, hopefully the, the point is exactly the same as you track along. 2 Samuel 15, verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said to him, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that there was a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow for which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. While Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city at Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. The king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and his, all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him and they halted at the last house. All his servants passed by him and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. And shall I today make you wander about with us since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with them. And the land, all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. 
And Abathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and its, his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Amihaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abithar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abithar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came out to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I've been your father's servant in time past, so now I'll be your servant, and then you will be able to defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Amihaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abithar's son, and by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Well, I want us just to spend a few moments looking at that passage, I think hopefully only about 20 minutes, um, if I manage to rattle through what we've got here. But I want to kick off with a, a question of biblical theology. I've, I've heard that it's just the, the keen folks that come out on a Sunday evening and say, uh, especially ahead of a holiday, right, say you guys are the super keen people, say I think I'm confident in asking you a biblical theological question. Let me assume that you understand that David in the Old Testament is for us a type of Christ, an arrow pointing forward to the Lord Jesus himself. And if that's the case, and um, if you're not sure why that is the case, you can uh, ask me later. But if it's true, let me ask you a question. When is David his most like Christ? Uh, what I mean, I think, is, is when does David in the Old Testament give us the clearest picture of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it when he defeats Goliath, you know, standing up to the enemy of God's people, winning a, a famous victory? Or is it when he conquers nations, gathers God's people to a unified nation, ruled from Jerusalem in, in kind of an unopposed victory? Well, what I want to suggest to you tonight is that actually I think it's here in 2 Samuel 15, when you find King David at rock bottom, it's here that we find that he's the most like Christ. And because that's true, because... In a sense, David at his weakest is his most like his saviour. Because that's true. That has some extraordinary implications for you and I, for our Christian lives and for our corporate life uh, together as churches that I want us to think about. 
But let me just run through the story just to make sure we've got our bearings first. I, I want to give you Absalom's four-step plan for robbing a kingdom. Uh, a four-step plan we'll just whistle through uh, and get our bearings in 2 Samuel 15, so you might want to look down at it. Our passage starts in verse 1 with the first part of the plan, which is for Absalom to look the part. Look the part. Uh, Absalom gets himself a chariot, horses, 50 probably slaves to run before him. So all a show, isn't it? It's a drama made to look impressive, done so that everyone knows that Absalom is someone important, someone they should take notice of. It's an interesting aside, but I think by this point in the Old Testament, really, uh, chariots and horses only ever have a bad reputation. They're consistently used by bad kings, not the leaders of God's people. So think Pharaoh chasing after the Israelites, as we heard this morning, into the Red Sea. And I think the point is that while you read this and you think, oh, wow, that must have been super impressive as Absalom was riding around with these uh, great chariots and these 50 people running before him. If you're a, if you're a careful Bible reader, or, or even if at the, the time you're a, you're a careful, thoughtful Israelite, you're going, hmm, you look a little bit like Pharaoh. That's not such a great thing, is it? The second step, not just look the part, but secondly, be a man of the people. So one of the king's jobs is to, to hear all of the complex legal disputes and pass judgment on them, which meant that, that coming into Jerusalem at the time would be a steady trickle of Israelites who had uh, trouble or complaints, uh, a lot of difficult situations on their minds. And verse 2 tells you that Absalom got up early in the morning and was there to meet them as they came into the city. Presumably before the morning sacrifice, definitely before the court opened to hear their case. And what's incredible is that for all of these cases that Absalom heard, he never heard a single case he disagreed with. Amazing, isn't it? Verse 3 tells you that his stock line was, your claims are good and right. Your claims are good and right. The problem, Absalom said, is not that your case is weak. The problem is the weakness of the king. If only there was a judge to administer justice. If only I was a judge. Verse 4, I would sort it out. Notice he's not yet asking to be king. Is he? He's not that stupid. He's not going to go right, right for the top right away. I just want to be a judge just to sort out this trouble. To cement this kind of man of the, uh, man of the people appearance, when people would go to bow to him, I, I love this detail, when they when they'd go to bow to him, he'd kind of pull them in for a hug and a kiss. Verse 6 summarizes it like this. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole, literally deceived or tricked the hearts of the men of Israel. So that's step two, be a man of the people. Step three, be patient. Verse seven is remarkable, isn't it? Absalom is patient with his wicked plan. You, you've had a hint at that earlier in 2 Samuel when in chapter 13 he took two years to take revenge on his brother Amnon for raping his sister Tamar. But now you learn that he's been doing this for four years during which time he must have met with hundreds and hundreds of Israelites and become famous amongst the tribes. You know, Good-looking Absalom with all his chariots and runners, always agreeing with everybody, patiently waiting for four years. Step four, though, then, is, is to be cunning. Absalom makes this strange request, doesn't he, to go to Hebron to worship. It's a little strange. He's been back in Jerusalem quite a long time. So why would he now want to go and, uh, and pay his dues in Hebron? I suppose it's plausible that he wanted to return to the place of his birth in order to fulfill his vow, but it's a bit strange. Nevertheless, Absalom is cunning enough to dress up his intentions in spiritual language. So David lets him go in peace in verse 9. But the real trickery of it is in verse 11. Absalom had done a good job of winning the hearts of the people of Israel with his four-year show at the gates of Jerusalem. But verse 10 shows you that he's confident that when the the trumpet blows that they'll be there to support him. But the problem really is the people who are still in Jerusalem. 
if you're going to be critical of the king, it's the people who are closest to the king who will actually know, well, that's probably not really that fair, Absalom. You're critical of David's slowness to administer justice or his inability to uh, let other people get involved. That The people in the civil service, well, they all know that's not true. So what does Absalom do with them? Well, verse 11 tells you he invites 200 of them to go with him to worship in Hebron, even though they don't know what's happening. He effectively, if you like, rips the heart out of David's government just at the, heart, uh, just at the start of uh, his rebellion. And so they go against their will to Hebron. And it's all helped by Ahithophel, David's most skillful advisor, who voluntarily, it seems, joins Absalom as well. Maybe, although we don't know, perhaps because he was Bathsheba's grandfather and maybe not a, a huge fan of David. So look the part, be a man of the people, be patient and be cunning, all of which lead to the conclusion at the end of verse 12, which tells you the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Now, what's David's response to Absalom's four-step plan? What does he do? Well, he runs, doesn't he? He runs away. Flee, go quickly, says David in verse 14, as he finds out, taking with him everyone except the ten concubines, who were left not so much to defend the kingdom, but to preserve the house for Absalom. And then the narrative itself slows down a bit. Do you notice this with this conversation with Ittai the Gittite, who I think has my favourite name in all the Bible, right? If only I'd had a boy. Um, anyway, he was a part of David's uh, conscripted army employed for his protection, but it seems like he's maybe a, a new arrival, and David, perhaps to test his loyalty, suggests that he should stay with the new king. Notice David calls Absalom the king. Ittai's answer, though, is remarkable, saying in verse 21 that he's following David's Lord and David, serving him in life and death. It's an incredible statement of faith in David and in God. The priests come next, who've brought the Ark of the Covenant with them from the tabernacle, but David sends those guys back. David's learned by this point in 2 Samuel that the Ark cannot be treated as a lucky charm, and moving it can be very costly. So he says, I'm going to trust the Lord that if he wants me back in Jerusalem, I will see it again. He then makes some plans, doesn't he, by setting up the priest's sons as messengers to communicate with him what's happening in Jerusalem. Right. Ancient equivalent of a secure WhatsApp message or something. He even sends Hushai back to the, the palace to work with them. In fact, I think the way that Hushai's bit is written in verse 32, it's, it's almost as if it's a direct answer to the prayer that's there in verse 31. David says, oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And then Hushai turns up as an answer to that prayer. Verse 37 tells you that uh, Hushai turns up in Jerusalem just at the right time as Absalom is riding into the city. Now, that's a really quick run through the story, but just think with me about those opening thoughts about David and the Lord Jesus. Look again at verse 30. What does it say? But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. Now, in a sense, as you read that verse, I, I think what you're meant to do is you're to contrast David with Absalom, right? So, so Absalom is uh, arriving in great power in the city, and David is leaving the city in great weakness. Absalom with his chariots, with 50 men running in front of him. David barefoot, weeping, head-covered, walking with a company of other head-covered, weeping people. You know, Absalom's cunning deception has put him in the seat of power. David is... Uh, handing everything over to the Lord, insisting that the ark remain in the city. Now, Absalom's deceived 200 leaders to join his coup. David is receiving pledges of allegiance from outsiders and foreigners. 
Now, now those contrasts are all very well, aren't they? But in some sense, there's more to it than that. You know, 1,500 years or so later, there's another betrayed king in Jerusalem. Not just in Jerusalem, but in the Kidron Valley. Uh, not just in the Kidron Valley, but on the Mount of Olives, walking those very same steps through the Garden of Gethsemane. This man, too, has been betrayed, marked by grief, weeping, shedding sweat, drops of blood even. And the conspiracy against him would lead him not just to exile, but to death on the cross. And, and this, I think, is the whole point of this story. It's why it's in your Bible. Because King David, here in 2 Samuel 15, is his most like Christ. He's doing his best job of mirroring Christ here, not in strength and victory, but in weakness and defeat. Now think about how that works. You know, David in his weakness is, is losing the kingdom as Absalom takes it over. It's going to take a savage battle to get it back. But as in those moments as he loses the kingdom, he acts out Jesus' walk out of the same city, up the same hill, with the same emotion. But the difference is this, right? In the midst of the betrayal and the grief, in the barefoot weeping on the Mount of Olives, at the moment of great human weakness, David is losing his kingdom. Jesus is winning his kingdom. As on the cross, he dies for the sins of his people to gather them together as a kingdom of forgiven saints who will love and trust and worship Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity. Let me just try and tease out a personal application of that and a corporate application of that for us this evening. Just the, the personal one first. Maybe you're, you know, you're struggling maybe emotionally or spiritually or physically. I know what it's like when you're, you're listening to... Uh, you're listening to so much, it's, sometimes you can only just listen because you're really thinking about what it is that's going on in your own life, aren't you? You know, you're churning over what work's going to be like on Tuesday, what's going on at home, the trouble in the wider family. Perhaps you're grieving and everything feels hopeless and empty. Well, well, the glorious possibility of 2 Samuel 15, that because it's David when he's at his weakest, that he's most like Christ, sharing in the footsteps of Christ even, that so too for us that when we find ourselves there, it's not simply that the Lord Jesus knows what it feels like to be grieving and to be weak. Rather, the point is that we understand that God's strength is made perfect in human weakness. That it is, it is when I am empty of my own strength that I fully rely on Christ, experiencing him a, a closeness and a fellowship that I've not previously known. Let me, I'll try and give you a silly illustration and, and try and make the point. And I'm going to try and be, do it in a sort of bilingual way because I realise that I, just, I say spanner and you say wrench. Is that right? Is that, is that right? So there you go. I've got it. Nailed it. So imagine for a moment that you're sitting in your front room and you're watching across the road as a, as a guy tries to undo his wheel nuts on his car with a wrench made from jelly. You have jelly, right? Yeah? Um, you know, and you look and you watch it, I know it's a silly illustration, you're watching this guy and he, he's trying to do his wheel nut and he's got a wrench made of jelly. What are you thinking? This guy has absolutely no hope, does he at all? There's no, every time he puts the wrench on the nut, it, it just kind of bends and, and slips off and uh, it doesn't, doesn't do anything. And you just sit there watching thinking, this, is, this guy's lost his mind, what's he doing? And then after a while of watching, somebody else comes up, right? Uh, and they take the jelly spanner 
wrench. So they take the jelly wrench out of this guy's hand and they put it on the wheel nut and they take it off. What are you thinking then? I know you're thinking, oh, I've entered a parallel universe. Anyway, no. What are, you, what are you thinking as you see them remove the nut with a wrench made of jelly? You're surely thinking something like this. Who is that? Who can take wheel nuts off with a jelly wrench? That person must be somebody out of this world and incredible. Now, in a roundabout way, that's exactly what's going on here, right? David, in the depth of his human weakness, is a wrench made of jelly, yeah? Jesus, in that same human weakness, is able to do what David was not able to do in that human weakness because he's God and his power is made perfect in weakness. And that's what's going on here. And so for us, the, the kind of recognition of our own weakness and our own defeatedness in our humanity, our own uh, weakness and suffering and death that will eventually defeat us, it's the recognition of that hopelessness. It's there that we get to see the strength of the Lord Jesus, who with our same human weakness, empty of all human strength, hanging naked on a cross, does in that moment undo the ravages of sin and death and suffering and weakness, bringing us to his eternal kingdom. Now, I'm not trying to glorify suffering as if it doesn't hurt or it doesn't matter. Of course it does. What I'm trying to show you is that there's not a contradiction between the gospel and suffering. Instead, suffering is right at the heart of the gospel. So much so that when all other hopes have gone, when all other resources have run out, it's then that we see who Christ is and what Christ has done. That it's in human weakness that we see the power of God at work. Why? Well, because being a Christian is finding, like David, that when all of the hope is gone, still Christ can be trusted. When you know that nothing else that you have is so certain that it can last through the troubles of this life and the judgment to come, then you will know Christ has been there, Christ has conquered, Christ is all I need, Christ is who I trust. You know, Jesus is not... We don't kind of bolt Jesus on, do we, to our lives. He's not, a, he's not a hobby or a therapist. It's not that we become a Christian by believing a few facts that we didn't believe before. No, becoming a Christian is abandoning all other hopes and trusting in Christ alone. For he is strong in human weakness. And it's the degree, isn't it, to which we acknowledge our weakness and our hopelessness. It's to the, the degree that we see ourselves in David's weeping footsteps that we enjoy and are delighted in the Lord Jesus, whose strength is made perfect in weakness. And it's my experience, and maybe it's yours this evening, that God loves to teach us that lesson. He loves to teach us that lesson. Not because he hates us, but because he knows how wonderful the Lord Jesus is and knows that we meet him the most closely as we abandon all hope in ourselves and find him trustworthy. Just finally, though, a corporate application. I wonder where you, where you go 
to see the work of God in the world. I was, I was on the phone to a friend who uh, was a pastor in Belarus. He's, he's run away from Belarus. Um, and uh, we were on the phone, and we, we were just chatting about the, actually this passage, because I was preaching it uh, in Egbeth, and we were talking about uh, what we thought it was about. Where do, you, where do you expect to see God at work in the world? If God is ruling and reigning, where would you expect to see it? And we were talking, because it, it was relevant at the time, we were talking about uh, seeing God at work, bringing peace to Ukraine, countries of Eastern Europe. You know, the Lord knows we've been praying for that. But I think 2 Samuel 15 suggests that actually you might find the work of God more clearly in other places than that. That you see what God is doing, not so much in the corridors of power, but in the faithful weakness of God's people. You see it, don't you, in the, the church pastor staying with his small congregation in the center of Kiev, teaching them the gospel, reminding them that Christ is with them, that eternity is not lost. Learning with them as someone trains them in first aid that they offer to give without fear or favor. Now, I'm not saying, don't mishear me, I'm not saying that we don't expect to see God at work in the big or the dramatic. Of course we do. There's reason to pray for peace. There's reason to pray for those in leadership. But the point here is, in 2 Samuel 15, in one where do you see the work of God most clearly? In Absalom's great show of power or in David's weakness? You know, the handsome dude with the chariots and the runners or the barefoot guy walking and weeping? Singing Psalm 3, salvation belongs to our God, salvation belongs to our God. Well, you see it in David, don't you? And so for your church here, for our church in Liverpool, you know, we long, don't we, to be used by the Lord for his glory in the communities in which he's put us. We long to make a difference. But I think it's a mistake to assume that we will see that in conventional success or impressive ways. Especially, I want to suggest, at the point in history which we find ourselves living now, which, if anything, appears to be the closing of the Christian era in the West, doesn't it? And I think what we should expect to assume is that it is possible for our churches to make the biggest impact, to be successful in the right sense of that word, the most Christ-like, not in success and strength as the world understands it, but in Christ-like weakness, marginalized by our culture, despised by the world, weeping and walking and pointing to an all-glorious saviour whose strength is made perfect in weakness. And he displays the surpassing power of God in weak churches like ours. Let me pray, and then uh, Seth's going to come up and we're going to take some questions and talk about it some more. Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge, although it's difficult for us, it is at the times when we have been our most weakest that we have found you to be all-sufficient, all that we need, not far away but close by. Thank you that in our human weakness, Christ conquered all, defeating in his death on the cross our sin, Satan, and death itself. Thank you that you are close by and with us, not just individually, but corporately as churches too. And pray that in the moment in which we live, when uh, what we believe and what we stand for, what we preach is despised by the world and makes us look weak, 
and maybe our influence will wane. We pray that we would continue to faithfully trust that in our weakness, people will find the all-sufficient power of the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.